From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today we're discussing unintended consequences and how a shift in federal policy led to noticeable changes in the way teachers perceive their own work and their impact on students. I describe it as they were being perched on a knife's edge in that almost every day they considered leaving their current teaching position for another school or they considered leaving the profession altogether. I was able to dig into that a little bit more and find out why. Why did they feel so much pressure and why was this pressure leading them to think about turnover? We're joined by the University of Dayton's Meredith Ranowski, co-author of two new studies on teacher perceptions and turnover during the No Child Left Behind Act era. Ranowski joins CPRI Knowledge Hub Managing Editor Keith Humiller to discuss her findings. So even suburban teachers who were in schools that had never really been labeled as failing, who were high performing, even they were feeling worry, stress, and demoralization in the NCLB era. And their potential implications for policymakers, teachers, and school leaders hoping to avoid those mistakes in the ESSA era. Basically, we found that teachers want a seat at the table when policy decisions are directly impacting their work. And I think we've seen this broadly in the teacher walkouts that have been occurring across the country. You see that teachers more and more think it's necessary to have a policy voice so that their technical core of their work and the way that their schools are structured is not negatively affected. That's right now on Research Minutes. I'm Keith Miller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Meredith Ranowski, Visiting Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership with Miami University's College of Education, Health, and Society, and soon-to-be Assistant Professor of Educational Administration at the University of Dayton. It's a pleasure to have you, Meredith. I'm happy to be here today with you, Keith. So today, we're actually discussing two new papers of yours. The first, titled Teacher and School Predictors of Teacher Deprofessionalization and Demoralization in the United States, was published last month in Educational Policy. And the second, Examining the Relationship of Teacher Perception of Accountability and Assessment Policies on Teacher Turnover During NCLB, is soon to be published in Education Policy Analysis Archives. Uh, So clearly, you've been keeping busy. (laughs) And both of these studies focus on teacher perceptions during the NCLB era, offering some thought-provoking perspective on sort of these cascading impacts education policy can have, and hopefully reinforcing some of those lessons learned as we move further into the ESSA era. But to start, can we just set the stage a little bit? What was happening in schools in the mid-90s and the early 2000s when NCLB kind of grabbed the wheel and took a sharp turn toward accountability and high-stakes testing? So actually, Keith, I'm going to take us back a little bit before the mid-90s. Most people have since come to trace the accountability and testing movement back to a critical report issued during the Reagan administration called A Nation at Risk. It really sounded alarms across the United States that student performance was mediocre and that if this sort of trend of mediocrity continued, the U.S. would no longer be globally competitive. H.W. Bush took up this performance-based mantle and really carried it into his presidency, naming himself as the, uh, quote, education president. 
However, the first iteration of what we now think of as federal accountability legislation was the Improving America's School Act of 1994. And it was Although the policy initiation point of federal accountability, it still placed most of the accountability and testing implementation decisions at the state level. So we can sort of think of ESSA as a return to the era of the 90s, which is important for framing our current policy conversations. So as a result of the sort of first accountability legislation being focused at the state level, you saw some states like Texas, Massachusetts, and North Carolina implement what we now consider relatively stringent and consequential school accountability. Uh, so for instance, in Texas, which has sort of become famous as a policy innovator in accountability, they were doing things like testing all students in mathematics and ELA, and then were publicly releasing test data. The Texas governor at the time, which was George Bush, he publicized that this sort of procedure of testing and publishing test data had resulted in tremendous gains in student test scores and reduced student dropout rates, increased graduation rates. And so this sort of Texas miracle is really the birth of No Child Left Behind. And after No Child Left Behind, can you give us a general idea of maybe what changed under that, either nationwide or in some of the areas that you were looking at in your study specifically, and how those accountability standards sort of changed policy at the school level? Yes. And so NCLB really did become nationwide consequential accountability that impacted all schools. So as a piece of legislation, it not only required all schools to test students in mathematics and ELA at every grade starting in grade three and to report those scores, but it also now required every state to identify quote unquote, low performing schools or schools that were not making adequate yearly progress. And those schools had to be the subject of some type of intervention. And so this was very consequential because the interventions were pretty drastic. So they included two major models. One of them was a turnaround model in which schools had to release up to 50% of their current faculty and release the administrators from service and essentially start over with the faculty and administrative staff that was new, or they had to implement a school improvement model, a transformation type model where they had to show that they were doing things that were significantly different with regards to school governance, school curriculum and school instruction. And so this was a very real sort of threat if you were a school that was labeled as failing or low performing, if you were in that bottom five to 10% of schools. And my personal history, I was a public school educator in a large urban district, and we were on the verge of being turned around, as it were. So we had gone for four years and not made adequate yearly progress um, with regards to our mathematics and ELA scores. And we had very real conversations for two straight years that many of us would lose our jobs if we could not raise test scores and sort of get off of the school improvement list. Now, my school we did raise test scores, but in order to do that, we engaged in what we thought were some 
fairly insidious practices. Our curriculum became very narrow. It became a lot like test prep every single day. We were really only focusing on students who were what we now call in our field bubble kids, students that were close to passing the state tests that we felt like if we had just a little more push with those students, we could get them over the finish line. And at the same time, we were widely ignoring the needs of high-performing students and students that were very low-performing or students that we felt like were just so far behind that in a year span, we could not get them to proficiency on the state tests. And there's narratives that these types of behaviors were occurring around the country. And that brings us um, to both of your studies, which you co-authored with the University of Oklahoma's Angela Yurick which uh, examine the rise and impacts of what researchers call teacher deprofessionalization and demoralization in the wake of those kind of changes and uh, that pressure. So just really quick, can you explain what those two terms mean? Sure. So this was not my first foray into looking at teachers' perception of their work in the accountability era. I actually completed a qualitative piece that's published in Education and Urban Society in 2017 that was looking at perceptions of teachers in a single large urban district that had really struggled with standardized test performance. And that district broadly had a really challenging teacher turnover problem. They were losing about 30 to 40% of their teachers every single year. So some buildings had virtually new staffs every three years. And so we're struggling organizationally. And so I started that study to find out who were these great urban teachers who were staying and the teachers who were really successful in working with students, uh, what were sort of their X factors? I did identify some characteristics of these amazing teachers. But what I also discovered was that every single one of them, I describe it as they were being perched on a knife's edge in that almost every day they considered leaving their current teaching position for another school or they considered leaving the profession altogether. And so since this was a qualitative study, I was able to dig into that a little bit more and find out why. Why did they feel so much pressure? And why was this pressure leading them to think about turnover? And so that's really where these ideas of deprofessionalization and demoralization came from. And what these teachers said was that they were losing control over what they could teach in their classrooms and how they could teach it. So literally, the school district was shopping for curriculum that perfectly aligned to standardized test items and standardized test objectives. And the type of instruction that these teachers were being pressured to engage in was little more than test prep. So all of the sort of rich things that they had been doing in their classrooms or wanted to do in their classrooms, things like project-based learning, implementing culturally relevant teaching practices and content were all sort of pushed to the side. Really deprofessionalization is this idea that teachers are experts in curriculum and instruction. That is really the technical core of their work. And during this era of accountability, the control over curriculum and instruction was really diminished in favor of a technocratic approach to curriculum and instruction. However, these teachers weren't just speaking about curriculum and instruction. There was a very affective response to this policy environment. 
So it ranged from teachers being very angry that time was taken away from them to work with their students to do things like analyze test data to just sadness that they felt like they couldn't really serve the whole child because they were so focused on improving test scores. So this idea of demoralization came through. And and this is what I was hearing from these teachers is this is not the reason I became a teacher. I did not become a teacher to just raise test scores. I became a teacher because I care for children and families. So in trying to describe this very complex idea of what is demoralization, I sort of identified three facets that I thought could be measurable. So first, these teachers all described that they had a decreased amount of time to work with their students in a holistic way because they were so focused on administrative duties related to test scores. The second facet that emerged from these teachers was that there was extreme worry and stress that was directly related to their continued failure to meet these standardized test benchmarks. However, the worry and stress was not just for them, but it was also for their students. They sort of saw what the the test pressure was doing to students and that school was becoming just less enjoyable and in some ways less safe for kids because their sort of basic human needs weren't being met because of this sole focus on standardized testing. And then finally, just a general desperation at knowing that no matter what they did in their classroom, they were really not receiving the kind of support that they needed to meet their students' needs. So for instance, in this large urban district, the the poverty rate is greater than 90%. Most of the students come from communities of color that have been historically oppressed and have experienced trauma related to high levels of gang activity and crime in the areas, broken families. So the type of support that they felt like they needed, things like wraparound services and high quality social supports were not available to them during the accountability era. So in your your first study, you set out to understand the predictors of deprofessionalization and demoralization at the school and teacher levels. And in your second study, you examine the relationship between those perceptions and teacher turnover. Did you approach both studies in a similar way? Yes. So there are deep connections between these two separate pieces. And we really consider the first piece to be foundational work to the second piece. The first study was to really just determine what are teacher level factors and school level factors that affect these perceptions. Because deprofessionalized and demoralized teachers could number one, reject the policy outcomes, that is patently reject accountability policy, which would prevent it from achieving its outcomes, or they could just not be doing their best work because deprofessionalized and demoralized workers in general are probably not at their best. So the second study allowed us to predict how these perceptions related to turnover. So the framework is the same between the the two studies, deprofessionalization and demoralization. We also used the same survey data and the same time periods for both of those studies. So the survey data that we used is the um, restricted schools and staffing surveys from the National Center of Education Statistics. And it's administered every three to four years. And we looked specifically at the range going from 1993 up through 2012. 
So this is the period of time that spans that transition from the state level accountability of IASA in the 90s to really the height of federal accountability under No Child Left Behind. So let's let's just jump right into the results. Um, what did you learn about the predictors of teacher deprofessionalization and demoralization? And how did those perceptions change during the NCLB era? So I'm actually going to start with the second part of your question there, because I think that it's important to note that we compared the full model results. So from 1994 to 2000, 2000 to 2004, and then 2004 to 2008 in the first study. And the only significant increases in teacher perceptions of deprofessionalization and demoralization occurred between 2000 and 2004, which is policy important because that represents the transition to NCLB. Deprofessionalization and demoralization saw a significant increase as we left the state accountability era at the end of 2000 and entered implementation of NCLB in 2004. So what sort of teacher factors and school factors predict increases or decreases in teacher deprofessionalization and demoralizations across all of the time periods for both deprofessionalization and demoralization? If teachers perceived that their administrators, their principals were not supportive, deprofessionalization and demoralization increased. However, in contrast, if teachers perceived that their principals engaged in shared leadership, so really empowered their voices across the range of work that they do in schools, deprofessionalization and demoralization decreased. And that was really true for all of the time periods. So that's an important finding about how to sort of mitigate deprofessionalization and demoralization, specifically related to principals' actions. Basically, we found that teachers want a seat at the table when policy decisions are directly impacting their work. And I think we've seen this broadly in the teacher walkouts that have been occurring across the country. You see that teachers more and more think it's necessary to have a policy voice so that their technical core of their work and the way that their schools are structured is not negatively affected. So if we turn to sort of school context, what we hypothesized based on our own experiences in urban schools, especially urban schools that served large percentages of students who qualify for free or reduced lunch and large percentages of students of color, we hypothesized that they would be more likely to feel deprofessionalized in the NCLB era and demoralized in the NCLB era than teachers who were in schools who were unlikely to be labeled as failures because they had always been sort of academically successful. And so what we found was that prior to NCLB, urban and rural teachers were more likely to feel demoralized compared to suburban teachers. However, this relationship between school locale, specifically in urban school locale, decreased following NCLB implementation. So this was directly counter to our hypothesis. We, we thought that urban school teachers were more likely to feel demoralized compared to suburban teachers as we entered NCLB. So this was puzzling to us. However, when we really thought about how we constructed these models, suburban teachers were the comparison group. So there's a potential alternative explanation, and it could be that following NCLB, suburban teachers' perception of demoralization 
actually increased to match the levels of urban and rural teachers' perceptions. So even suburban teachers who were in schools that had never really been labeled as failing, who were high-performing, even they were feeling worry, stress, and demoralization in the NCLB era. And so that's a very interesting finding to think about how the policy pressure diffused across all of these school types. We also found that teacher deprofessionalization and demoralization was significantly higher in schools that served larger percentages of students who qualify for free and reduced lunch and in schools that served 90 to 100% students of color. So the takeaway from the first study is that the most deprofessionalized and demoralized teachers were concentrated in our highest need schools. But overall, these perceptions increased in a nationally representative sample across all teachers as we transition to the federal accountability era under NCLB. And in your, your forthcoming study, you examine the relationship between teacher perceptions and turnover, specifically teachers who moved schools or left the profession entirely. So what did you learn there? So in our second study, we brought this framework of deprofessionalization and demoralization into the teacher turnover space. And in 2008 and 2012, the Schools and Staffing Survey provide an interesting opportunity to sort of connect the dots between teachers' perception of testing and accountability, their perception of their work, and turnover. So in 2008 and 2012, the Schools and Staffing Survey specifically asked teachers a group of questions about how they perceived testing and accountability as related to their turnover decision. So we were actually able to examine two different groups of teachers in this time period from 2008 to 2012. Those who said that testing and accountability was a reason for their employment decision and those who said that testing and accountability had no real influence on their employment decision. And the findings were very interesting. So teacher deprofessionalization in both groups was not significantly related to turnover. So their idea that they were losing uh, autonomy over curriculum and instruction while this perception increased as we moved into the NCLB era, it didn't really have a significant effect on whether teachers said they were going to leave or whether they actually did leave their school or their profession. The single significant predictor was the worry and stress facet of demoralization. So worry and stress significantly predicted for both groups of teachers whether or not they said they planned to leave their position. So what we call intent to leave. However, intent to leave did not predict actual turnover, which is interesting in and of itself. In comparing the two groups of teachers, the most important difference between teachers who thought testing and accountability was a very real problem for them and those who did not think it was a problem for them was that worry and stress significantly predicts both teachers moving to a different school and teachers leaving the profession only in a group of teachers who said that testing and accountability was a reason for those decisions. So we believe that this study makes a really important contribution to connect those dots. How is the relationship of teachers' perception of testing connected to their relationship of 
deprofessionalization and demoralization? And how is that connected to turnover? And we have a pretty clear story that emerged where teachers thought that testing and accountability was a very real problem for their work. They were more likely to feel deprofessionalized and demoralized. And the worry and stress associated with demoralization was directly connected to them leaving their current school, looking for greener pastures, essentially, or leaving the profession altogether. Wow. So I'm really curious to know what you think the implications of your work might be, particularly as we move further into the Every Student Succeeds Act era. Before we do, though, are there any limitations that we should be aware of? As far as implications go, we always know that there are unintended policy consequences and that these unintended policy consequences are frequently driven by the perceptions of policy implementers. In the case of NCLB and other accountability policy, we're in a unique situation in that teachers and school administrators are both the policy levers. So that is teachers and principals in schools have to change their behaviors if the policy is going to work, but they are also the policy implementers. So not only are they the effect, but they have to be the cause as well. And so their perceptions are going to dramatically affect policy outcomes in the case of accountability policy. So understanding their perceptions and these unintended consequences are going to be very important as we transition to the ESSA era. So this is why we sort of have an entire field of public policy work that dedicates itself to understanding implementation. In the case of these studies, sort of the hope and dream would be that policymakers would take up this work as we head into the ESSA era. And we think that there have been some strides here. So there were alarm bells sounded across our fields about the unintended consequences of NCLB, particularly the rigid focus on mathematics and ELA standardized test scores as the single measure of school quality. So what we've seen as we transition to ERA is that some states have created accountability policies that are much more congruent with what we've heard from teachers, including the teachers whose voices spoke through this study, that teachers think that school quality and their own quality as educators should be more focused on student growth and that there should be diverse measures of school and teacher quality, including things like family engagement and supporting diverse student populations more holistically through enrichment and engagement. And certainly we have seen some states that have included much more diverse measures of school and teacher quality as we transition to ERA. However, we've also seen some states that have made only very small shifts from their NCLB ERA policies. So essentially just readopted the basic framework of NCLB. We also believe that there are local school and district level leadership implications for this work. What we know is that accountability and testing does not have to be incongruent with teachers having a positive perception of their work. In 15 years as a K-12 practitioner, both as a teacher and a working in educational leadership, I've never encountered a teacher who wants their students to do poorly on any test, including standardized tests. We have some evidence from other empirical work that teachers do support accountability and that they believe that teachers should be high quality. So they believe in teacher evaluation. However, what it really occurred was that 
you see teachers asking for empowerment in how accountability and testing policy is implemented in their school buildings. So we know from these two studies that if leaders at the school and district level can share curricular and instructional decisions so that teachers can have a voice in how accountability and testing policy is really implemented, they're less likely to feel deprofessionalized and demoralized. We also know that leaders can focus on things outside curriculum and instruction to reduce this idea of demoralization and that some students can't be reached with traditional curriculum approaches. Rather, these are communities that need wraparound services like quality access to mental health professionals, social workers, and social service support programs. So these are the things that our teachers are asking for. And we do have some work that has come from some of my esteemed colleagues, John Diamond and James Spillane, who have written rich case studies that have shown that where principals bring teachers into the policy conversation around accountability and, and, and testing and how to meet those sort of standardized test goals, they're not having that sort of negative backlash towards testing. And in fact, they begin to frame testing as a tool for school improvement and serving students rather than something that's working against their work with students. That's great. And Maybe at a, a slightly higher level, do you think that there are any takeaways here for policymakers who might be trying to avoid some of the challenges and, and missteps that we saw under NCLB? Yes, the states have submitted and had their initial ESSA plans approved. And as I said, some states you saw, I think, really responded to the political backlash against standardized testing and as it was framed under NCLB, and they included really diverse measures of school quality. So things like, are you engaging families? They also began to shift away from student test proficiency to student growth. And that's a very different way of talking about student achievement. Basically, are teachers in schools growing students from where they were, rather than are they getting them across sort of a finish line? So I think that policymakers need to monitor going forward. And I think we have a real opportunity here now that we have sort of a framework of describing teacher perceptions under accountability policy. We have a real opportunity to examine differences between these states. So in states where policymakers essentially just readopted NCLB and labeled it as their ESSA plan, our teachers more likely to feel deprofessionalized and demoralized? And is teacher turnover higher in those states compared to states who really incorporated a voice from teachers in the way that they constructed their ESSA plans? So we now have an important opportunity to compare states and look at the effects of different policy plans. So the hope would be that we could continue this work and that policymakers could be fluid in the changes that they make to their ESSA plans. So if we find that a certain ESSA plan is really leading teachers and school administrators to feel deprofessionalized and demoralized, are they able to change? Are they able to rewrite their ESSA plans? There is flexibility to do that, but whether or not states will take that flexibility, I think remains to be seen. Great. And are there any opportunities here for future research, either for you or for others working in this field? 
Yes. Now that we have a framework for describing teachers' perceptions of their work, I think it's important to do state comparisons. And especially in the schools and staffing survey, you know, we just have the most recent iteration that's been released, the 2015-2016 study. And hopefully the National Center for Education Statistics will continue to have funding to issue the schools and staffing survey uh, in the next three to four years. So every state having different ESSA plans, we have a way to examine what is the relationship between the type of ESSA plan that a state has to teachers' perceptions. And so I think that's an important future piece of work and a good way to apply this framework to policy evaluation of ESSA as well. Great. Well, it really does seem like a, a worthwhile area of study and certainly something to keep an eye on as we move forward into the ESSA era. So for listeners who would like to learn more, I really encourage everyone to go read both of Meredith's new studies. The first is Teacher and School Predictors of Teacher Deprofessionalization and Demoralization in the United States, which is now in Educational Policy. And the second is Examining the Relationship of Teacher Perception of Accountability and Assessment Policies on Teacher Turnover during NCLB, which is soon to be published in Education Policy Analysis Archives. Meredith Ranowski, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, it's been great speaking with you, Keith. And of course, the, your listeners can also reach out to me um, via email. My emails are contained in both of those manuscripts. If they would like to start a dialogue or a discourse around this work, I think it's that's an important opportunity. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today on, on Research Minutes, Meredith. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to this series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's c-p-r-e-hub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at cprehub.org.